0: Before we begin the sermon, I, I want to say a quick prayer for Florence Turley. She was at a wedding in uh, Sulphur Springs and passed out, and she's in the hospital there in Sulphur Springs. They're running a couple tests. She's fine. She's just, uh, this is a, she's passed out a couple times, in the, three times, this third, fourth time, and she's passed out in the past year, so we're uh, worried about her, but praying for her, so uh, let's, let's go to God in prayer on behalf of Florence right now. God, we uh, we come to you now um, with Florence on our mind as she is um, such a important and um, wonderful part of our church family. Um, be with her now as she is hospitalized away from home, and um, how stressful that might be for her. give her peace, be with Terry, who is with her, um, bless them and help the doctors there to be able to. Discern my exactly Florence is uh, losing uh, consciousness and passing out. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Um, yes, continue to pray for Florence and we'll have updates on that as, as we go. Uh, this, this week, uh, Rachel and I are going to take the kids up to Silver Dollar City, um, the Disneyland of the Midwest. And uh, I love Silver Dollar City, and I remember it as a kid. We uh, took them earlier this summer, and uh, we we bought season passes so that we'd be forced to take them. And uh, and I remember so vividly Fire in the Hole being the coolest thing, and we were like kids, you gotta ride Fire in the Hole, and it is so creepy. It is like a, it's like a Disneyland ride, uh, like got rejected. You know, because if you go to Disneyland or Disney World, they every ride has like there's something off the side and people are like working and, and here they've just stuffed some sand in a pillow and drew a face on it and it's hanging out a window. There's a ladder for no reason. My kids, Claire was not happy. No one said, I did not like that. <laughs> and when they're scared of a ride, like when, like that's the ride that made sense for them to be, yeah, that was that was like a nightmare in water. It was awful. But when they're scared of a ride and it doesn't make sense, you wanna you wanna calm them down. You wanna say it's no look, all it does is it does this, and they've made up their mind, I'm not gonna do this, I'm afraid. And there's nothing you can do about it. Because you're not in control. You know, because they're like, hey, you know, your instinct is to say, nothing bad can happen. But that's not true either. Sometimes rides are defective. That's why we don't, if if there's a carnival set up in a parking lot, they put that together today. We're not getting on any of those. Those bolts were tightened yesterday. Maybe... So we're, you, you, can't always, you can't always comfort them because you don't always know. Now, if it's something I put together and I know for a fact, like, this, is, this is not going to fall over. I've worked on this. I know for a fact it's not going to fall over. Then I can comfort them. I can tell them, I put this together. You're going to be fine. And I'll say, don't you trust my carpentry? And they're right to say, no, I do not trust your carpentry. But the problem with with Job is God comes to him, not Job himself, but the book of Job. God comes to him and like a parent comes to a child and we have to determine the tone of Job's final, or God's final conversation with Job. Because if God comes in angry, if God comes in uh, mad about Job's not trusting him, then the last bit of Job means one thing. But if God comes in like a loving, gracious parent comforting a child who's worried, then it means something else. That's one of the hard things, one of the problems we have with the Bible is that it is a text. It is written word on a page. It is It is. It is like someone wrote it down and we have to read it. They're competing, aren't they? There's two competing in here. Um, you can't really discern the tone. Sometimes I text Rachel with my um, with with my with the voice text. Do you do this sometimes? Just I'll say I'll be walking into Walmart and I'll say, "Hey Rachel, I'm going to Walmart I'll be home after I go to Walmart." But see, I'm the guy that when I do that, I'm like. Grammatically, so I, I say the commas, I say the periods. Um, I'm on I'm on my way to Walmart, comma, and when I'm done, I'll be home. Period. I say that, but it but it's fun because it always just sends it to her as a sentence. But um, if you're feeling kind of stressed, and maybe not even at your spouse, you can you can take it out on Siri, and it co- it, it sends as a normal tone. So you can say I I will be home when I am done with Walmart. Period. And then it feels feels like, and then it just sends her a regular sentence. It doesn't take, the, you know, just period. The tone matters. Like how you say something matters. I'm coming. I'm I'm coming to see you. I'm coming to see you. So how you understand the tone of the text matters. And in Job, I, I'm just gonna. I'm not, We're not gonna try to figure it out together. I think. I think from the from, if you read it from the beginning of Job, you will see that God has always been proud of Job. God has always been fond of Job and he comes to Job as someone who is fond of Job and proud of Job. He's not coming in saying, do you know how the waters work and do you know how the sky is, was created and do you know how these, these animals that, are, that live out all by themselves get fed? No! You don't! So be quiet Quiet, you silly goofus. Sorry, I kind of went out of control there for a second. But you know, that's not what God is saying. And sometimes we could read it like that. We could read it as if God is coming, pretty, is coming hard at Job, and he's not. Job is in despair, and his friends are not helping. And God comes in, instead of, being, instead of coming with the tone of his friends, instead of matching the tone of Job's friends... He comes in with the tone of God, I believe. Now, what's crazy is to, uh, to disagree with me, you, you just have to disagree with me. That's, uh, there's no proof or anything. You just disagree with me. But I think uh, that's how God's coming to Job. And he says, the, the, the first little discourse God has with Job, there's two different speeches God gives. We'll be spending time in the second speech. But the first speech is basically, I handled all of creation. I can handle you. There are, he uses mountain goats and uh, mountain lions, like like these animals that are in these these remote places. He says, I feed them. Kind of Jesus echoes this sentiment whenever he says, do not worry. The grass of the field is clothed. The birds of the air are fed. Do not worry about tomorrow. And he comes to Job to squelch his worry. I am here, and I've got all all of this, I've got. Job's response to that speech is just to say, I'm going to be quiet now, which was a good response. We'll look at his second response next week, and that's where we'll finish the series on Job next week, but... The second response is an even better one. But this last, the second speech by by God is one where he deals with two other animals. First speech is about creation. Creation, I've got creation under control. Do you know about creation? Can you tell me about creation? Because if you can, then do so. And then God says in Job 40 then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm brace yourself like a man I will question you and you shall answer. Now we can read this, right? Brace yourself like a man, jerk. You know, we can we can read it however we please. Brace yourself like a man, I will question you, you shall answer. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Now, at this point He's, he's saying, Job, will, will you choose the path that the that your friends are saying you've chosen? The implied answer is no. Do you have an arm like God's? Can your voice thunder like His? Then adorn yourself with glory and splendor and clothe yourself in honor and majesty and unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at all who are proud and bring them low. He's basically saying... Are, are you the one who brings justice? If you are, then do it. Unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at those who are proud and bring them low. Look at the, all who are proud and humble them. Crush the wicked where they stand. Bury them all in the dust together. Shroud their faces in the grave. Then I myself will admit to you that your own right hand can save you. But the implication here is, no, it it can't, Job. If if you come to me and say, "Why do all the good people pros- or the bad people prosper and the good people suffer?" And I say to you, "Well, then, in your righteousness, you should go smite them. You take care of it." You say, "Well, that's not really for me. Why isn't it? It's because you're not righteous either." I myself will admit to you that your own right hand can save you. Look at the behemoth. Okay, at this point, we're getting into words we don't know. Uh, Behemoth, they think, was a hippopotamus. Now, you may think, oh, what's a hippopotamus? Hippopotami kill more people per year than just about any animal in Africa. They are so fast. Tiny legs move really quick. They can swim really fast. and They can eat you so fast. If they're trying to protect their young, a hippopotamus will kill you. It is is a beastie. Do not go near a hippopotamus. If you don't get anything out of this sermon. (laughs) I love when preachers say that. If you don't get anything, hear this. Oh, I could have not been listening this whole time. You could have preached this sermon in in five seconds. Look at the behemoth, which I made along with you, which feeds on grass like an ox. What strength it has in its loins, what power it has in the muscles of its belly. Its tail always like a cedar. The sinews of its thighs are close knit. This doesn't really line up all the way with a hippopotamus. It's a mythological animal, but here we go. Its bones are tubes of bronze, its limbs like rods of iron. It's ranked first among the words of God, yet its maker can approach it with his sword. The hills bring it their produce, and the wild animals play nearby. Under the lotus plants it lies, hidden among the reeds in the marsh. The lotuses conceal it in their shadow, and poplars by the stream around it. A raging river does not alarm it, it is secure." Though the Jordan can surge against its mouth, can anyone capture it by the eyes or trap it or pierce its nose? No, no, but God can approach it. Okay, so that's the behemoth. He spends a lot more time on an animal called the the Leviathan. And the Leviathan was mentioned those of you who remember back in um, Job chapter 3, where he says, "Those, those who rouse the Leviathan, may they curse the day. And God spends some time here saying no one rouses the Leviathan. Nobody. Okay, so we'll read about the Leviathan and we'll come back and and see some more things about them. Can you pull in Leviathan with a fish hook? Nope. Or tie down its tongue with a rope? Nope. Can you put a cord through its nose or pierce its jaw with a hook? Will it keep begging you for mercy? Will it speak to you with gentle words? Will it make an agreement with you? for you to take it as your slave for life. Can you make a pet of it like a bird or put it on a leash for the young women in your house? Will traders barter for it? Will they divide it up among the merchants? Can you fill its hide with harpoons or its head with fishing spears? If you lay a hand on it, you will remember the struggle and never do it again. You'll pull back a nub is what he's saying. Any hope of subduing it is false. The mere sight of it is overpowering. No one is fierce enough to rouse it. Who then is able to stand against me? Who has claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. Okay, at this point, Job. If we were Job, with our Western understanding of science and, and zoology, and we know about animals, that's the first thing we teach our kids. That's a cow. Good. Set for life. But we know about animals so much so that when we hear Leviathan, when we hear Behemoth, we kind of start trying to go, um, okay, that's kind of like a hippo. He's probably talking about a hippo. And that's kind of like an alligator. He's kind of talking about an alligator. So when we hear this, we basically hear God saying, "No one's stronger than me. I'm the strongest." That's not quite what He's saying. So they lived in an area where all sorts of gods were worshipped, um, and we have records of those gods. Um, you you may recognize them. Uh, you remember the name Baal or Baal, if you want to pronounce it correctly. We don't. I don't want to. I'm in the south. I'll say Baal. I don't care. Baal. He was the creator God. Is the God who produces agriculture. Um, he, He gives them their food, they believe. When Baal, in this area, created the world, he had an enemy. You know, you think, oh, wow, a competitive creation. That's cool. Because then it's like, hey, we can, we can pick a side and root for it. Our, our creation story has a similar thing. We just don't catch it. In our creation story, remember, God's, the Spirit of God hovered over the chaos, the darkness, and the sea. So in our creation, the one where we go to Genesis 1 and we see God hovering over the waters, it's not peaceful. The water in ancient understanding was where evil lied. It's where chaos lied. Darkness was chaos. Things were not in order in creation. And so God comes in and He he puts things in order, shines light into the darkness. Gives order to the day and the night. Pulls back the sea. So in our creation story, God is fighting against chaos, darkness, and sea. And in the uh, Ugaritic creation story, which is where they they were, Baal fights against a, a literal monster of sea and chaos named the Leviathan that comes in and tries to stop Baal from creating order in the chaos. So someone in Job's situation, or someone reading Job in the first uh, first time they read it, when it was first told, when it was first written, would know... So when God comes into Job and says, see the Leviathan? I'm bigger than the Leviathan. And you're not. What God is saying is not, look how strong I am, but God is saying, even chaos bows to me. God can even work with chaos. And he's done it before. The whole creation is God's. Everything belongs to him. Everything under heaven belongs to him. There's nothing that happens to you that God can't do something with. Now notice I didn't say there's nothing that happens to you that God didn't do to you. Because that's not always true. Now notice I can't call the balls and strikes. I'm not the umpire. I'm not the creator, I don't know. But whether whether God is putting you through this test or you're going through this test because you've made poor decisions and that's just where you stand, no matter what, God can beat and have influence over and he rules over chaos. Things are not going your way. Everything under heaven belongs to God. There's not a single thing that God doesn't rule over. And this may, end us, this may lead us as, as thoughtful people to ask questions like, well, if God's in charge of everything, if God can conquer all chaos, if everything under heaven belongs to God, why doesn't God, why, what about cancer? Where's God when, when our loved ones die of cancer? Where's God when our, when our loved ones die of heart disease or diabetes or, or of just tragic accidents? Where's God when things, when there's, when, the, what is it, the duck in Branson, the thing that flipped over? Where's God when that happens? Why doesn't God conquer cancer or diabetes or or heart defects or why doesn't God conquer those things? And the answer is God did conquer those things. Because cancer and heart problems, and diabetes and ALS Alzheimer's. And just living a healthy life until something traumatic or tragic or maybe just old age finally gets you, it all leads to the same chaotic problem. It all leads to death. I told the story before, but I have a I had a good friend who over who, who beat cancer three out of the four times he had. And the fourth time, was God not good then? Every time we beat cancer, we said, praise God. And then he dies of cancer. Can I praise God still? Absolutely. Because Jesus came and conquered the ultimate of chaoses, the ultimate chaos and brokenness in our world. He conquered sin and death. The results of sin, God overcame, and the the result is death, and God beat that too. When we die, we don't stay that way. Resurrection is the ultimate conquering of the Leviathan. Resurrection is the ultimate conquering of the behemoth. When we look at God and we say, where are you? The resurrected King Jesus says, I'm right here. Beat the thing all this stuff's leading to. God wins. God is victorious over death. And we, we follow that king because that king beat all things for us. All brokenness for us. God comes in and says, I can handle the Leviathan. And then he sends his son Jesus and does. When Jesus died on the cross and overcame death, it's like God walking up to the Leviathan and saying, you have no rain anymore. God walking up to chaos and saying, you have no rain anymore. God walking up to death saying, you don't rule here anymore. God walking up to sin and saying, you don't get a say in the matter. We, are, we, we live and follow the good news that Jesus is alive, the Leviathan is conquered, chaos is put to death, and we don't stay dead any longer. So we are joined with that Jesus into his death, into his burial, uh, through his resurrection and baptism. The reason we symbolize that is because it's the symbol of our victory. His death, burial, and resurrection. That's That's what we got. That's what he did for us. Death has no victory. It has no win. And all the things that lead to death have been defeated. Because their goals aren't permanent. And Jesus' goal is. So if you want to join with Jesus this morning in his death, burial, and resurrection, if you want to give your life to that king, follow that king, please come forward while we stand and sing.